Welcome back to The Evil Eye, a podcast about goth movies. I am your co-host, Robert Scavarla. And I am your other co-host, Sam Deegan. We want to welcome everyone back after our first episode. Um, as hard as it may have been to get through goth, some of you made it. We have something better in store for you today. Let's put it that way. Well, better and more serious. But before we get on to that, I think the important thing, if you missed episode one, is that movie Goth established the rules for being goth. And we're going to try to apply these rules to all future movies that we talk about. And so those rules, I think it's almost sort of a moot point here because we're talking about vampires. And today is going to be an episode about vampires. If you didn't realize from the beginning of the episode, I'd like to quick give a shout out to OG goth Rocky Erickson, who supplied the intro music Night of the Vampire. But on that subject, it's not just vampires. It's a particular type of vampire, a Texas vampire. Sure. And okay, let's back up for a second because... I feel like on some level, part of this podcast is about us defending whether or not we think a certain movie counts as being goth or not. And I think all vampire movies on some level are automatically goth. That may be true, but I, I'm almost certain that there are a few out there, the sparkly vampire movies, for instance, that oh, I think yes. some people might argue against. I am not that person. Yeah, but I know some people would. Some people being me. Yes, I was going to say, movies. some people in this room would argue against <laughs> that point. Okay, fair enough. But I think this movie definitely counts because of just the sheer level of violence and sort of sad bastard romantic subplot that we'll get into. But <laughs> for, <laughs> those, for those of you who haven't picked up on what we're talking about yet, we are referring to uh, the 1987 film Near Dark. Caleb Colton no longer belongs to our world We'll give him a week, see if we can call him one of us. He belongs to hers. But you have to learn to kill. He belongs to theirs. I don't want to kill. He makes a kill tonight. And they all belong to the night. It's three hours short for a bus ticket home. You help me out? What are you on? Believe me, I told you. Just don't think of it as killing. Amen. 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 Don't think at all. It's just something that you do night after night. It's only ever a question of how. Nervous. I would be too if I were you. Near dark. Which I think definitely fulfills the three rules for being goth. Rule number one is to embrace the darkness. Because they're vampires, they literally cannot be in the sunshine. What is rule number two? Kill your fear. And they kill a lot of people. Severin particularly. Yes. Bless him. Uh, rule number three is live for death, which that one's a given. Well, some of them do and some of them don't. And yeah. we'll find that out by episode's end. But um, before we get into that, I actually wanted to look into the history of Texas vampires because it seems like it's this weird niche that has never really been filled before this movie. I know there are vampire westerns, right? Yes. So this is something that really frustrates me because I love horror westerns and I don't think there are enough of them in the world. And Bone Tomahawk, recent one. Very good. Which but I actually haven't seen still. All of Zoller's films, I will say, are amazing and anyone who disagrees is a moron. 
But beyond that, what other horror westerns were there prior to Near Dark? Well, so Near Dark, I would say, is the first one to take its subject matter seriously. I mean, you have things like Curse of the Undead from 1959 and Billy the Kid versus Dracula from 1966. What which... about Pale Rider? That's kind of like a proto-slasher film in a way. Well, I think you could make a case for Pale Rider as being sort of it, like it's it's definitely a western with supernatural elements and it's extremely violent and you know an amazing film but and awesome and yes it's wonderful I love Pale Rider but I don't know that it totally qualifies as a horror western fair in, I can totally see in that. the That's neighborhood why it's sort of like I'm sure I'll be saying this phrase a lot but it's sort of the way that Rocky Erickson could be considered maybe not goth music, but goth adjacent. I feel like okay. Pale, Pale Rider is horror Western adjacent. It's <laughs> in the same ballpark, but it's not quite as literally horror Western as Near Dark is. So there haven't been a lot of horror Westerns in particular. There haven't been many, if any, vampire Westerns. But uh, John Carpenter's Vampires. Which came after this, but there have been Texas vampires. So in doing research for this... I wanted to see what Texas's history was with vampires, and I found it was rich and quite bloody. So I'm going to read off a few examples of Texas vampires that have existed throughout the state's dark history. First is actually current. It's um, a cosmetic plastic surgeon in Austin, Texas, named Dr. Jennifer Walden. Dr. Walden offers patients something known as a vampire facelift. Which I, someone out there listening needs to start a band called Vampire Facelift, please. <laughs> this procedure that uh, Dr. Walden offers can cost in excess of $2,000 and involves the good doctor drawing blood from her patient, adding a hyaluronic acid as a filler, and then injecting the plasma back into that person's face. So this is the most bullshit thing ever, which, first of all, if you're going to call something a vampire facelift, it should involve bathing their face in the blood of virgins. But she does. So in advertising and in write-ups of Dr. Walden's procedure, she has been called Countess Bathory or compared to Countess Bathory. But this isn't like, you know, a tech startup out in California funded by Peter, Peter Thiel, which involves <laughs> like harvesting the blood of young people and I feeding wish. it back into the body of like rich tech bros. This is just a woman, you know, taking your blood, adding a hyaluronic acid and then like injecting it back into your face. Which is the dumbest thing ever, because, you know, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this who are goth are use makeup. Urban Decay, probably. <laughs> yeah. And... Hyaluronic acid is a common ingredient in moisturizers, especially if you're somebody who wants to use a moisturizer without feeling like your skin is oily or greasy or weighed down. So it's basically like someone is injecting moisturizer into your face. Like there's, it's a waste of money. We're going to get a little more romantic in our next Texas uh -oh. vampire. In 2011, um, a man by the name of Lyle Monroe Bensley, age 19, broke into a woman's house in Galveston, Texas, and tried biting her neck while she was asleep. Thankfully, she escaped, but Monroe, a romantic, decided to turn himself in because he didn't want to hunt humans. Upon arrest, Monroe Bensley claimed that he was 500 years old. Which, it's almost like a modern-day recreation of George Romero's Martin, like, as a real-life story. But I think it's like that trope in a lot of especially like post 80s um, vampire movies where the vampire is human or doesn't want to hurt humans. 
it's one of those things that they suck the blood of animals so they don't have to hurt people or something like that. Yeah, there's it What's also the one? blood and donuts is the one I'm thinking of, like off the top of my head. Yes, uh, it also reminds me, and I can't believe I know this, but it reminds me of this episode of CSI where <laughs> <laughs> where this woman has uh, this real life medical condition called porphyria, but. In the episode, she's this like super gothed out lady who kills people and like puts their organs in a blender and makes herself shakes. And that's what goths do. They put people's organs in blenders and make shakes. No arguments here. Okay, last one. And this is the darkest one. In 1998, a man named Pablo Lucio Vasquez, who is also known as the Vampire Killer, so you know where this is heading, kidnapped a 12-year-old boy and slit his throat so he could drink his blood. Uh, Lucio Vasquez was executed by the state of Texas on April 6, 2016. His final words, see you on the other side. Yeah, that is just grim. But I, I think this is sort of, these kinds of real-life stories frustrate me like I mean, these weren't the only ones there was a trucker vampire sure. who kidnapped women and drank their blood there was a veterinarian vampire who um took animals from patient from clients and told them that he had euthanized them but then he used the animals to transfer their blood into younger animals it was like it was a little confusing i'm pretty sure and it's been years since i've seen it but the vampire western that i mentioned curse of the undead it came at a time when American horror was largely fixated on atomic terror in movies and got away from the supernatural. But so the you, 50s? Yeah, so late 50s. You you have all these movies, all these sort of really low-budget but mainstream movies that kind of collide this idea of the supernatural with mad science. So there are definitely some of those plots going on where this you know mad scientist in his basement laboratory is like turning bunnies into vampires. A lot of post-Dracula Bela Lugosi films. Oh, for sure. And I am sure that we will discuss some of these in future episodes, but I have to admit that I am kind of obsessed with bad vampire movies. I like, I have a genuine real love for them. They can be fun. Um, it depends on what era we're talking about. I tend to, um, also enjoy bad vampire movies, but they tend to be like 80s bad vampire movies. Sure, but some of the Poverty Row ones are great. Oh, absolutely. Um, and we've been blessed uh, living in a city like Philadelphia, where unfortunately it's not so good today because it's 115 degrees. The same temperature have, as uh, hell. We have wonderful film programmers in this city who've done like programs on Poverty Row films. There's one on Tangerine Dream now, which lines up with what we're talking about today because Tangerine Dream supplied the music for Near Dark. So we've had a lot of opportunities to see like weird, bad and good vampire movies recently for some reason. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's I want to make a horrible pun with the out laughing and say, you know, vampire movies will never die. But <laughs> but I, I, I can't quite do that. But before, I should just put a clip of uh, Bella Lugosi's dead in here. You should. Undead, undead. <laughs> before we get talking about the plot of this film, though, one of the things that I did want to discuss a little bit is. I really don't understand why horror westerns aren't explored more because sort of as you pointed out with those true crime vampire stories, I feel like this idea of the American West as this place of freedom but kind of chaotic 
potentially often violent freedom is such a rich source for stories, whether literature, songs, films, and there just aren't enough of them. I think part of it is that um, Westerns don't, they were popular amongst um, certain generations of people, like definitely the greatest generation and early baby boomers uh, were very much into Westerns. They grew up on Westerns, John Wayne and stereotypes of like who a Western man was. Um, well, who who an American man was. Right, because that was always intertwined. Like Manifest Destiny and all of that showed up in American Westerns in positive ways early on. And then in the 60s and 70s with the Acid Western and the Revisionist Western, you started seeing like differences and changes in that. And I think the Western at a certain point moved to the action film. Um, specifically in the 70s, you see movies like Death Wish, which we reconstruct like the classic Western in urban environments. Whereas like the Westerns in that era were more concerned with being about, with retelling the story of the West and how it really was, you know, like I'm thinking yeah. of like big, uh, what's the Dustin Hoffman film, big little man. Yes. Um, and Jeremiah Johnson, even though that was um, a John Milius film or a film he wrote, and he's not the type of person you would think to do that. It was still like, it was trying to show the Western as like a difficult, hard place that was miserable for everybody um and people were terrible people because of that but you don't see that as much today because people don't care about westerns as much today if you see a western they tend to be prestige films in a way which is weird because they didn't start off that way yeah i mean i do think that in general westerns sort of look at these kind of foundation foundational myths of american society but they do specifically look at American masculinity, which is why I think it's so important that this is one of Catherine Bigelow's first films, certainly her first solo film as a director. Oh, absolutely. Be- well, um, she's somebody who I think I would argue almost all of her films explore this sort of problem of masculinity and masculine violence. Oh, absolutely. Um I don't know if like we, we've talked about this before and I don't know if I see it as much in this film and I know you disagree, but you can start seeing it in later films. Um, one of her next films, Blue Steel, which was about Jamie Lee Curtis um, becoming a police officer is about a woman operating in male spaces and the interaction she has with men who are uncomfortable around that and don't view her as being equal. And then she followed that up with um, Point Break. The greatest love story of the 90s about two men. Johnny Utah and Bodie. Absolutely. Um, But that was explicitly about like male relationships and uh, male violence and how it interacts with um, its environment. And you sort of maybe get that here. Like I said, I don't know if I see it, but you do. I do. And I think one of the things that so I don't think I've actually said this yet, but while I love Near Dark, I find it to be frustrating. Like I find things about it that are troublesome and not in any sort of dramatic way, maybe just troublesome because it's a director working in the early years of her career, sort of sorting out her themes and what kinds of films she wants to make. But I definitely think this has the sort of origins of that point break type relationship between Caleb, who is the sort of the panty waist protagonist. <laughs> that's, well, that's one way of uh, describing him as not being a wimp. Well, he's the same sort of do-gooder, moral center, hero, character type as Johnny Utah in Point Break. 
but that connects well to the idea of the Western too, because the hero in a lot of at least like pre 1960s Westerns was someone like Caleb who had a very clear moral compass. And even if it was tested, um, he always came back to the side of good. He never fully embraced the bad. Um, I'm thinking of something like uh, the searchers where John Wayne's character is very clearly a racist. Oh, yeah. I don't know that you want to use the searchers there because I feel like the searchers explores him not being heroic and, the sort of failure of responding to situations with violence and certainly the failure of his inherent racism. Like, right. Uh, that movie's pretty grim. Maybe not. Okay. So maybe not the searchers, but I'm thinking of John Wayne films specifically where yeah. he's being tested in a number of different films. And he very clearly, even if he um, maybe lapses into being a villain at points, always comes back around. Well, and I think that's what's so interesting about some of John Wayne's characters is that it does look at sort of the darker side of what it means to be that kind of like rigid hero type. But I think Jimmy Stewart's Westerns is another oh, example yeah, where absolutely. it's just like they're so squeaky clean that you're you're like, okay, this is not interesting. And Caleb in this film, he isn't... So I like Adrian Pazdar as an actor. He's done a lot of great work. I think the TV show Profit was way ahead of its time where he played like an egomaniacal, you know, scumbag Wall Street figure. He's also kind of good, and I can't believe I bothered to watch this, but the sort of mutant power X-Men type show called Heroes, he's pretty good in that. As, so I like him as an actor, yeah. yeah. But like in this film, he doesn't really have a lot to work with. And I don't know if it's just the role or if it was like partially how he chose to play the character, but he's just not interesting or at least not interesting compared to the other characters in the film. In fact, both leads Caleb and may, um, they represent like very clear, like character archetypes, but because of that, yes. they don't have room to be more than that. Well, that they, yeah, they don't. So they're not really given an inherent conflict. It's they're they, given a character. Yes. A they're, type. you know, they're, she's a manic pixie dream girl. She totally is. And she's another one uh, where... Jenny Wright? Yeah, where I feel like she is so underused. I think, I mean, she she shows up in things like Pink Floyd's The Wall and Lawnmower Man. She has all these, like, small roles. But I think she and Adrian Pazdar give great performances but are limited by a script that basically says, okay, you have these two characters who become vampires and you know she starts off the film as a vampire but is the youngest of the sort of vampire family and their character arc is they fall in love so why don't we start from like the very beginning because we haven't really yeah. gone into the plot yet so okay. adrian pastor the film opens with adrian pastor uh, caleb. caleb driving into a texas town for ice cream I guess that's what it is. For shits and giggles and ice cream. And immediately he is attracted to May because she has that thing that all vampires have where like everyone's, they have a magnetic presence that draws people to them. She's also a babe. She's a babe. And she's a woman in a Texas town. So, you know, Texas dudes are going to be drawn towards that. That's just well, and the a, way that works. An outsider. So she's not somebody they've seen before and right. they want to know who she is. And So um, Caleb pursues her aggressively so and in very weird ways. Um, I know you found like his courtship of her to be odd the most ridiculous scene maybe of the whole movie is he strikes up a conversation with her flirts with her by asking to take a bite out of her ice cream cone which if you notice is sort of like a clever Did reference joke? to to vampirism oh okay and <laughs> i actually did not pick up on that clearly yeah well <laughs> i'm glad i'm here 
uh, offers to give her a ride home and then takes her to meet his horse at two in the morning, three in the morning. Like what? I mean, so I lived in New Mexico for four years and I interacted with a lot of people in Texas because I was going to El Paso a lot and people being into horses and showing off horses and the culture surrounding horses in Texas. That's like one of the least weird things in this movie to me. That actually seems like it might be honest because I knew dudes who were like genuine cowboys who would walk around in like a 10 gallon hat and spurs. So seeing um, Caleb do that, I didn't think it was dishonest. Did you ever see anybody walk around in assless chaps? I did not know. Well, um, that's that a shame. That I don't think you do in public. <laughs> Just uh, a hunch. So I've never been to Texas and have lived up and down the East Coast, and I'm very much, you know, a stereotypical Northerner. So in my fantasy version of Texas, people walk around in assless chaps, and I guess maybe in Austin because Austin is weird. But beyond Austin, sure. I, I I can guarantee you that people aren't doing that in like small town Texas. <laughs> Well, fantasy shattered, but it it just I think one of the things that I do really like about this early introduction of her character is she presents an inversion of the trope of the sort of helpless young woman. I mean, she could easily this easily could take a dark turn and be some sort of movie where this girl is all alone with this guy she doesn't know, but she can clearly take care of herself, which she she doesn't bother trying to hide in any of her dialogue and he just sort of rolls with it. He's just a horny teenager. So I'm pretty yeah. sure like he's just going to be, yes, take me wherever you want to go. Weird manic pixie dream girl. Please bite me on the neck and turn me into a vampire. It'll be fine. She does. And we soon see him, you know, running through the dusty field with like his body starting to burn up. Yeah. I guess. Um, the way they portray um, vampirism in this film is interesting because they don't conform to a lot of the mythology or tropes. They kind of which pick I and love. Yeah. Well, so they never mention the word vampire throughout the course of the movie. In much the same way, you know, they don't say zombie in Night of the Living Dead. Bigelow picks and chooses which trope she wants to work with, so she can kind of make her own version of it. But um, he ends up back at his house. Yeah, but. It basically, it's a plot contrivance that allows his father, who's played by the great Tim Thomerson. Yes, the awesome Tim Thomerson. He should have had more to do in this movie. He really should have. Um, it, the movie basically should have been a showdown between Lance Henriksen and Tim Thomerson. Absolutely. But they end up, he ends up back at his house and then he gets kidnapped in a creeper van. So this is two movies in a row yes. with creeper vans. I, I'm hoping that the third movie will also have a creeper van, but <laughs> Seems you to never know. In all of <laughs> these goth movies, there are creeper vans. Uh, there has to be, but and this is our introduction to the vampire clan. Yes, and so basically the whole movie is he doesn't want to be a vampire, but he wants to be with May because he's a wimp. Because he's a wimp, and because he's a squeaky clean goody two shoes who just wants to settle down and marry a girl and pump out children but (laughs) (laughs) that's the best description of this movie i think i've heard (laughs) well okay so the vampire family also have a conflict in the sense that they don't want caleb to be a part of their group because they can tell he's a lily white panty waist yeah they can tell who he is and yeah each member of the group individually is like 10 times more interesting than caleb or may and would have probably made for a more interesting film if we were just 
following them. Because right. we have the vampire clan who is Jesse, played by Lance Henriksen. Who is the oldest vampire. You get the sense that he has been around for probably 200 plus years. He mentions that he fought in the Civil War. And, and he fought for the wrong side. And he did fight for the wrong side. But Lance Henriksen is amazing in the role. <laughs> I mean, as he is in so many roles, but... But then we also have um, Severin, played by the amazing Bill Paxton. Which, moment of silence for Bill Paxton. So, yeah, I think, like, if the movie is a love story, it's not a love story between um, Caleb and May. It's a love story between Jesse and Severin. Well, it should have been a love story between Caleb and Severin, the way that Point Break features this sort of closely bound but fraught male male relationship and they hint at it yeah especially towards like the middle of the film but it it definitely goes in that direction and it seems like the movie is at times about caleb trying to gain approval from severin and he does for a hot minute but doesn't deserve it so then we also have diamondback Played by wonderful, correct? Yes, Jeanette Goldstein. And the interesting thing about this is a lot of the Aliens cast members return. And I just love that they all get to work together again. So all three of those actors were in Aliens as like the shit kicker crew on the, um, it's not the Nostromo, what's the... I can't remember. Yeah. The heat has gotten to my brain, but except for Lance Henriksen, who's the right. android. They got uh, ported over from Aliens because apparently uh, Catherine Bigelow had just met James Cameron, who makes an appearance in this film as well in a cameo much later. Um, but Cameron suggested she just use the crew. And in fact, um, did Michael Bean? Yeah. Was so, supposed to be in the film? So Michael Bean was supposed to be Jesse, which would have been a fucking disaster. And you can't beat Lance Henriksen. No. And my favorite story related to this movie is the Lance Henriksen prepping for the role story. How did he do this? Where he apparently... So Michael Bean turned the script down because he thought it was too weird, which... Uh, it's weird. But coming off of Aliens, like, come on, dude. So, I think that was a paycheck film, probably. <laughs> oh, for sure. But whereas, unlike Michael Bean, somebody like Lance Henriksen, I mean, all of his greatest roles are in these type of really wonderful cult films. And he seems... This, the horror show, uh, well, Brian Bosworth's story. Well, he did Pumpkinhead story, uh, right after Pumpkinhead, this. Stone Cold. Yeah. And, and so he, it's he's clearly not afraid to explore these type of roles and seems to really enjoy them. But his prep for this movie... He apparently showed up to set in costume and aside from the rat tail. Um, and I don't actually, I don't have confirmation about that, but I, my assumption is that there's no way he could have grown a rat tail that long. In, in Lance he can do whatever he wants. That's true. But the best part is he rented some sort of van and drove cross country. Picking, van. Yes. Picking up hitchhikers. And, as you do when you drive a creeper van. I wish somebody could find those hitchhikers and say, like, so, that time Lance Henriksen picked you up when he was preparing for Near Dark, like, tell us about your experience with him. There's your Near Dark sequel, anyone who wants to make that. Please don't make that, but there's your idea. Yeah, well, I would be happy to see Lance Henriksen reappear as Jesse, for sure. So then we have our last member of the Vampire Clan, Homer. Last but not least. Um, he's also kind of the most interesting of the group, partially because of the actor portraying him and his weird connections to like the horror legacy family that he's a part of. Yeah. this. So Joshua Miller is somebody that people will probably recognize from movies like River's Edge. And 
I didn't find this out until a friend of ours brought this to my attention like a year ago, but he's the son of Jason Miller, who is Father Karras from The Exorcist, and <laughs> his his brother is Jason Patrick. His half-brother. Yes, his half-brother is Jason Patrick, who is the star of Lost Boys. Another 1987 like, vampire What movie. are the odds that... Yeah. that his two kids go on to be in these two different, and we'll definitely have to talk about the relationship between this movie and Lost Boys a little bit later. But it's just because like Lost what Boys a is cast. very much a goth vampire movie, not a goth western, but a goth vampire movie. Sure, and that I think deserves its own future episode. Oh, absolutely! If only to talk about the rice, Michael. Oh, I was going to say Tim Capella, sexy saxophone. Man. Well, that too. <laughs> it's weird how like you have this horror legacy family. Uh, making two movies in the same year. But like the fact that Near Dark even gets made is kind of surprising to me because of like all of the weird quirks that it has. Like the script um, doesn't really, I mean, it follows like a linear progression, but like it sets up these contrivances um, to move the plot along. It's not necessarily like a completely coherent film. No. The acting is kind of a little all over the place. So it's one of those weird the fact this movie got released, uh, I'm not entirely surprised by because it was the 80s, but the the factors that combined for this movie to happen are something that confu- is something that confuses me. Well, what's so interesting about it to me is that Catherine Bigelow and her writing partner, this guy named Eric Red, who also did The Hitcher, another road uh, horror, yes. kind of western. You could call it a western. You could totally call it a western. And I think they both explore that really interesting idea of kind of the American West and this idea of the freedom of the road as being places of inherent violence and chaos and instability. Like, they make a great double feature. Right. The idea of the West as a place of violence isn't something new, but they do something interesting with it. Um, And it conforms to a lot of, like... And male relationships. Male relationships. It conforms to a lot of ideas that were really hot in that era. Um, There are, like, academics like Richard Slotkin, who wrote Regeneration Through Violence, which is something that very much connects to the idea of vampirism where, you know, you die but are literally reborn through an act of violence. And that's something you see in lots of Westerns, where, like, the hero becomes a new person, typically because in the first act his family is murdered and he must get revenge for that and he becomes someone else completely from who he was before. Yeah, and I think one of the things that fascinates me about this is Catherine Bigelow and Eric Red knew they wanted to make a Western, and they wanted to make sort of a darker, violent Western and explore some of the genre tropes. And so they wrote this script, and the feedback that they got was, you know, this isn't really box office material. What you need to do is you need to take another popular genre and include elements of that in your script. And so they went with the vampire film, which had just this sort of sudden resurgence in the 80s. But it's also a very 80s thing because uh, mashing mashing up genres was something like a lot of people were doing in that era. Yeah, I mean, even Aliens. It's a horror movie and a war movie. Many horror movies in that era take styles of like various genres and incorporate them. The horror comedy became huge again in that era. You got stuff like the monster. Uh, so you had Monster like, Squad. You had the Fred Decker movie Monster Squad, his Night of the uh, Night of the Creeps. You had like things like the Burbs. The Burbs. Um, there's lots of movies that mix various genres, and this is just another one that does that, and it does it well in places and like not so well in others. Yeah, and I do think. 
the thing that frustrates me. So before we move on to talking about my favorite thing about the movie, the thing that frustrates me the most is the way they deal with this sort of solution. Like as we've already discussed, you know, she takes this new approach where she throws out most of these sort of rules for vampirism and just kind of wings it. Like they can't go out in the sunlight. They have to drink blood. That's the end of it. But throws in this sort of bullshit nonsense about how Caleb can get a blood transfusion and be totally human again. Which... So we, we've jumped to the end. We've jumped large plot points and we will definitely get back to some of the more interesting ones. But the transfusion, I mean, it's something that has appeared in vampire literature previously. It's in the original Dracula. Sort of. It's not like the ultimate solution because they obviously, like in um, Bram Stoker's Dracula, it's something that happens, but the person is still turned into a vampire anyway because of the stupidity of other characters in the novel. Well, it's also, so the way that it functions in Dracula is Lucy is fed on by Dracula several nights in a row, falls increasingly ill. And the way that Van Helsing and Dr. Seward restore her is through a blood transfusion, but she's still human. She's just a sick human. Whereas in this movie, Caleb is fully turned into a vampire, is a vampire for... I'm a little hazy on the actual like timeline, like how long the movie takes place. But seems like over a couple of days. It, yeah, he's at least a vampire for a couple of days. Can't go in the sunlight. Has to drink human blood. And then Shazam with Tim Thomerson's magical touch, he's turned. And okay, maybe Tim Thomerson is actually the real solution here. That one I could buy. I was gonna say maybe Tim Thomerson's blood is the antidote to vampirism. I would believe that. Yeah, so, I mean, it definitely appears in other versions of the Dracula story. I, I remember reading the Turkish adaptation, which came out after Stoker's. Um, I forget how long after, but it appears in there in a very similar way. And But they're not fully turned into right. vampires yet. But I think, like, the idea is that they were using it to reference the original Dracula story. And the idea of, Sure, like, I'm just saying I'm it's bullshit. I'm almost certain the transfusion idea has been used in other places, too. Well, you also have to take into account that... And this is my academic training probably coming along and ruining everything. But I feel like you have to take... Such a killjoy. I know. You have to take into account with any 80s vampire movie that a discussion of blood and transfusions almost always in some way connects back to HIV. Right. And so I think it does take on a different context here where... There's this idea of blood contamination as transforming Caleb from this kind of do-gooder country boy who is responsible and cares about his family into living with this kind of degenerate criminal family. And it's only through a transfusion that he's brought back into normal society. That's actually a really dark interpretation. <laughs> well, you're welcome. So... We jump to the end. Let's jump back a few scenes. Because sure. I think my favorite scene in the movie and the scene that everyone is that it's best known for. My favorite scene too. Is the bar scene. Which is exactly at the, which I, I love noticing stupid bullshit like this, but it is at exactly at the midpoint of the film that this takes place. So right. it really is the centerpiece. And it begins with the group walking up over the hill with that iconic shot where they're backlit, standing on so the road. So beautiful. And they walk in and Bill Paxton 
Severin screams about shit kicker heaven, which is well, one of my favorite lines in the movie. I think because you brought that scene up real quick, we should mention that the cinematography, which is one of the greatest things about this film, is from Adam Greenberg, who also shot Terminator, Terminator 2, Ghost, 10 to Midnight. Uh, 10 or, to Midnight, really? I, I don't know if he was the like full DP on 10 to Midnight, but he did photography work on it. I like that you mentioned all these Academy Award winning films or like films that had nominations for things like Saturn Awards. Hey, 10 to Midnight is important And to then me. I'm like, Charles Bronson, yes. Yes, exactly. And he also shot uh, Once Bitten, another vampire movie that we, will, Perry, right? that we will not ever be discussing on this podcast. It's not good. No. So they end up in the bar and um, they're clearly not welcome. They're there amongst, you know, a bunch of like true blue Texans. Shit kickers, Shit as, kicker as Severin says, yeah. yes. They park, uh, part of the group parks in the back of the bar, but Severin decides he's going to test Caleb and brings him up to the bar and begins antagonizing um, an actor who I recognize from other roles, but I couldn't place him in this film for some reason. Yeah, I think he's one of those actors who's just sort of like generic southerner right generic angry southerner who doesn't want to be fucked with and just wants to drink his beer in peace as god intended for all american men to do and that's what happens here but severin just keeps poking at him and poking until finally they get into a fight and then which doesn't go well for the texan man the vampire clan decides to murder everybody partially because the um tension that has been playing out was they've been trying to provoke caleb into killing and he just doesn't want to do it because like lyle monroe bensley he doesn't want to hunt humans. Well, because he's a wuss. I mean, who wouldn't want to be part of a cool vampire clan with uh, Lance Henriksen and Bill Paxton? And Jeanette Goldstein, who also. is... Uh, I, I think we did sort of fail to mention that unlike other vampire movies, which sometimes present vampires as being kind of more bestial and monstrous and not having human feelings... They, aside from maybe Severin, they do seem to be genuinely bonded to each other. Or they try to. I mean, one of the big themes of this movie is loneliness. Yes, um, which I think we should talk about after the majestic bar scene. <laughs> bar scene. <laughs> so they're in the bar, and one of the things that's immediately like, that stands out about it is everything, all of the other music in this film is by Tangerine Dream, and it's wonderful. It's very, like, you know, a heavy 80s. What you think of when you think of an 80s score, you but think of like But not so ethereal. Oh, no, no, because it's um, it's a Western. You have to have that hard edge to it. So there's and, a lot of guitars where you but would I think they normally associate. do that perfectly. But then you get to the bar and it's, I don't want to call it pop music, but um, it's country and Western and rockabilly and the cramps. Which I just, I love the fact that the cramps are thrown in here, but even more so. So the first time I saw this, I was going through puberty and this is a good puberty movie. <laughs> well, you learn a lot of things about yourself. Yes, you sure do. And seeing for years, my memory of this movie is that Bill Paxton is shirtless in this scene, which he is not. No, but I'm going to continue to remember it that way. Go for uh, it. But he looks very much like he was like the design for his costume was modeled after Lux interior of the cramps who I totally is see always that. shirtless. I could totally see that being something Bill Paxton did himself because he was, um, he had an alternative band in that era, a new wave band, Martini ranch, which we'll play a clip for right now.
Yeah, it just, I mean, it definitely sort of shaped my uh, my sexual preferences, seeing Bill but Paxton can... with his, like, leather jacket and murdering people and, you know. But he right. looks so much like that sort of, I don't want to say punk type, because I think it's more post-punk. But oh, absolutely. Like, if you put Severin in a lineup with Lux Interior from The Cramps and even Ogre from Skinny Puppy from that period, they're all dressed the same. They kind of look the same. And I just love that, that goth, element. Like that goth cowboy look you think of yes. when you think of like Fields of the Nephilim or um, The Mission, who kind of bordered on that. They dipped a toe into that particular water. Yeah. So I could totally see that being something that maybe Paxton did himself because he he was moving in those circles in that era. Both in music and in art, he always had like he he wasn't an actor who picked exclusively like big Hollywood movies. He was always picking weird character parts, which is why it's always been so weird to me that he starred in Twister. Like, I hope he'd made a stupid amount of money on Twister because in general, you have to make Twister to make frailty. Yeah, but it definitely in general, I mean, he is in the crazy things. Like, I just took a glance at his like career from that period and you have stuff like butcher baker nightmare maker stripes which is mainstream but i fucking love stripes stripes is great night warning mortuary taking tiger mountain streets of fire and then his mainstream stuff is all like terminator commando aliens predator 2 which is one of the greatest movies ever i will fight anyone who disagrees but i mean some of that early stuff i know in terminator he plays one of the gang members who gets his clothes stolen early on so a lot of that stuff was him just trying to you know get a footing in Hollywood and um, he's great and I mean yeah. I love that so so one of the best things about this movie is Severin's dialogue some of which he has the was, best lines yeah and some of which was I think improv by him right uh yeah in the bar scene didn't he improv the one um uh, about the greatest line yes there's so he bites one of the bar patrons I ate him when they been shaved but he's got all these great lines like uh Howdy, I'm going to separate your head from your shoulders. Or we keep odd hours, which I really love. Yeah, and my personal favorite, which is I'm going to knock your tonsils out of your asshole. Once they leave the bar, they go to a motel. Oh, wait, we have to talk about the the character. So as we've as we've mentioned, oh, your hatred of. Uh... Yes, James, James LaGrosse. OK, so as we've mentioned, there are definitely some issues with the script where things happen seemingly sometimes for no reason or but just to move you to the next scene rather than like actually fitting in like the picture as a whole yes and so the basically the end of the bar sequence is Caleb is encouraged by May to kill this sort of young bar patron in a cam in a very very early cameo from James LaGrosse who I think people will recognize from every bad 90s indie movie that I hate. Yep. And at first you can't quite tell it's him, but it it totally is. And so Caleb chases him outside but decides to let him go and he alerts the cops and leads then to they a end showdown. Up at the motel. 
Yes. Um, which turns into a shootout because it is a Western, even and there if there has a to be movie. a shootout. And Caleb decides to make the rash decision to run out into the sunlight to save the group to get a van and crash it into the building that they're staying in so they can escape. Which is a pretty cool scene. It's a cool scene. It's one of those things where it's like, okay, I guess we're going to do this. And for some reason, they trust him enough to do it and not run away or just get himself shot, even though he's never proven himself to be anything but a complete like loser up to that point. Well, and this is one of my problems with the script here is you basically need something. If, if you're going to follow the structure that it's been following so far, you need there to be some sort of moment where he is finally bonded with the two dominant male members of the family and the alphas. She, yeah. Well, so she talks about how the way that she structured their dynamic was inspired by wolves and so there is clearly like a structure of dominance going on within the vampire family, but it doesn't feel big enough or important enough. It's like he makes one gesture out of panic and to save his own life more than anything. And, it seems like to save himself in May. Yes. And so like, yes, he did save them and it's great that he did that. But the reaction from Jesse Homer and Severin are so dramatic. Like they're not, it well, seems mean, out of character, spur, which is like this weird thing that you wouldn't expect because Severin is very like, as you mentioned with wolves, he's a territorial figure and it seems yeah. like he wouldn't be handing over a piece of himself to this stranger who just did one good thing. And it's the first good thing he's done in the entire like lifespan of their relationship. Yeah, really what it should be is some sort of violent killing that would inspire that level of bonding, right. not a random act of, well, I just saved our asses. Right, but they do it, and it pushes the film forward until... Until Homer comes across... Okay, so I think we failed to mention that because Tim Thomerson is such a badass, he's decided, fuck this bullshit. I'm going to go, I'm not going to rely on the cops. I'm going to go in search of my son and these, these crust punks in their RV who have stolen him. And so it just so happens that the vampire clan and Tim Thomerson, who is with Sarah, Caleb's young sister, are staying at the same motel. Again, as I state, uh, contrivance that exists solely to make the plot make sense. Yes. And but so Homer brings... Yeah. Um, Sarah into their room and the rest of the group seems cool with it you know Bill Paxton's like hey little man you do you well sort of I mean they're confused Diamondback, Diamondback is, a is apprehensive Diamondback thinks it's a bad idea because it might attract the attention of the girl's family which of course it does once we find out who her family is yes but I, I do think it sort of underlines a really important theme to this movie which is that all of the vampires and I hate that this draws a connection to Twilight, which it kind of does. All of the vampires seem to have the ultimate goal of finding some sort of long-term companionship because they are their sort of fundamental characteristic outside of violence is loneliness. Homer initially turned May, who, based on Was what the too film states, old. well, who? So Homer is. I believe the second oldest member of the clan. Yes. Um, when they're talking at one point, um, Severin and Homer joke about starting a fire in Chicago, which I have to assume means the, the great, great fire. fire. Yeah. He's definitely the second oldest one there, but he's trapped in a 10 year old, 12 year old's body. Yeah. So he's perpetually 
in puberty, which must really suck. That but would I would walk into the sunshine. Because of that, he turns May, but she kind of rebukes him because she is well, clearly older. Yeah, she's like, she's I think she's supposed to be yeah. like maybe somewhere 16, between 17. 17 and 19. But she clearly so isn't into a 12-year-old boy old who to, yes. is older than 12, but like trapped in a 12-year-old's body. Sheep goes and finds Caleb. Um, Severin's kind of like the chaotic evil in that he'll kill or fuck anything that moves. Yeah. So he doesn't need companionship like around him all the time. Um, there's well, that great scene where he picks up the two women in the truck. Which is a wonderful scene. And But then you have Divin back and Jesse, who are like the actual like They're like a married couple, couple. yeah. And I think the thing with Severin is much like with other Catherine Bigelow films, it seems like Severin's real bond is with Jesse. Right. So he doesn't really need He's the Bodhi of this movie. Yes, he doesn't really need a primary sort of female companion because he has this male companionship and his version of surfing is, you know, blood spray, I guess. <laughs> or riding uh semis. Riding a semi. Like you um, do. But so Homer is trapped in this twelve year old's body, so he sees a young girl, probably, I imagine the sister is supposed to be, what, like nine or ten? Yeah. So he brings her into the room and he wants to make her his, like, lifetime companion. Someone who is his age, understands his problems, and who he can bond with. Well, and it also seems like a sort of defiant response to May finding her own partner. Right. He specifically states at one point that, like, he turned her and she should be his. Or something to that effect. But she chooses Caleb... And I think when they realize that um, Sarah is Caleb's sister, um, that makes it only like that makes it more something Homer wants than he would have before. Well, and I think it makes it something that Severin also approves of because if he can poke at Jesse, uh, not Jesse, uh, Caleb more. And if Caleb's family is the only is one of the things that sort of stubbornly makes him cling to his humanity. If his family isn't human anymore, then he doesn't have to be. I think from Homer's perspective, it's kind of, you know, you took something from me, I can take something from you now too, which I think adds some shading to the characters. Which it's interesting because a lot of these 80s vampire movies deal with this idea of a young man going through the sort of journey into adulthood and dealing with all these family issues. Like it, that's definitely in Fright Night, even though the protagonist there is human and not a vampire and definitely the case in Lost Boys. The idea, like, I don't want to say necessarily like you, there's a queer reading of this where these characters, sure. the male characters specifically are being brought into this world. They don't understand and being tempted with something that they maybe want, but has um, historically been told is evil to them. Sure. And in this film specifically, like he rejects it and he chooses to go back to the normal, you know, straight life. Boring. But in other ones, um, Fright Night specifically is a weird one with that because um, there's um, that temptation that's underlying the relationship between um, the main character and Chris Sarandon. So Chris Sarandon, who is the lead vampire, is he takes the lead's girlfriend in part because he's trying to get to the lead. Yes, and he takes his best friend, and he makes his best friend. There's definitely a lot of queer reading that you could do on something like Fright Night. And I really do think that Fright Night has more in common with the Burbs than... This movie. Yes. I mean, I, I think Near Dark and Lost Boys have this really direct parallel relationship in a way that Fright Night's not really part of that, but it's still... 
has this kind of idea of the family as a source of kind of tension and fear and horror. It's to me, it's really weird that a lot of these eighties movies are so fixated on the home and the family. It it almost reminds me of fifties horror. Oh, absolutely. But I mean, so that was a period, you know, the fifties, much like the eighties and much like today is a period where America's in crisis over its identity. Yeah. Um, We were, you know, the modern nuclear family was being pushed as the ideal. So, on the fringes of American culture, things like horror could comment on that where you wouldn't necessarily see it in sitcoms or in mainstream movies. Or if you did, it was always kind of portrayed in maybe a negative way if anyone, you know, went against the predominant. Oh, like, I mean, norm. if you look at 50s sitcoms, it's all about like Leave it to Beaver and, you know, it's all about reinforcing that for right. sure. And I think a lot of like mainstream American cinema in that era was also doing that. So on the fringes, you had things like this and other horror films where you could work in like that perspective on the family or in this film specifically, you see an inversion of that with the vampire clan. Where... Oh, and totally film noir is right. another example. And like, you know, erotic thrillers that started in the late 80s Ooh, are all... Please let us talk about erotic thrillers. I love them so much. Oh, yeah. We're going to have to do some some erotic thriller episodes for sure because that idea of the sort of 40s film noir femme fatale I think winds up being re-envisioned in the late 80s and early 90s in a way that you could describe as goth, like ladies wearing all of this like black PVC. and Oh, yeah, absolutely. It definitely comes up. But this film definitely um, subverts like that idea of the family as a source of as like an ideal that oh, one yes. should aspire to. Not that um, Tim Thomerson and Sarah are portrayed as being bad, but it's a broken home. The mother's clearly sure. not there, and they make no reference to her at any point. So even like the same family in that's Lost Boys in this film, oh, sorry, it's go a, ahead. no same in Lost Boys with the broken home. It's the the family's not bad, but there's just something fundamentally flawed about families. The idea, yeah, that like you can exist in this space and it's the right thing is kind of questioned because Caleb's what, like 19, 20 in this film, he's still living with his parents. Yes. And I realize in certain as in certain parts of the country that even in the eighties, that was kind of normal. You'd stay on the farm and work until, you know, got married. Wife or yeah. Got married. But the fact that he's still there and he seems very attached to like his youth, in a way, it speaks to the idea that this is a film about transition and moving out of like the idea of the family or the idea of childhood in Caleb's case. So there's a lot of transition or like the idea of transition in this film. Totally. And I think that idea of looking at things on the outside of society, sort of outlaw culture is something that has followed Bigelow throughout her whole career. I mean, we've already talked about Point Break, which, you know, looks at this gang of bank robbers. The Loveless, though, which was her first film. Yeah, totally. And it you could make a lot of interesting connections between The Loveless, which if you haven't seen The Loveless, you need to see Willem Dafoe, Willem Dafoe. reimagined as like a 50s greaser, but in sort of like a post-punk lens it's amazing um but yeah even things like strange days or her later war films kind of look at this idea of 
American society as being fundamentally broken. And she sort of explores the cracks, especially where things like masculinity and families are concerned. About the changing nature of our identity as a people. Oh, definitely. And And you can see that with like the idea of the vampire moving from like human to something else. So a lot of her films are about that kind of transition of this country from one period in time into something else or masculinity from one space into another. Definitely. And I think there's been a lot of, especially in recent years, a lot of academic work that looks at horror films in the 80s as being all about physical transition from human to non-human. I mean, there are tons of great things written about uh, John Carpenter's The Thing, but even just zombie movies and the way that they're all really put this focus on kind of gore and special effects and this idea of the grotesque, like the human being forced to become the non-human, right. is really interesting. I think one of the um, interesting things about this movie, how she conveys that visually, this movie is like perpetually set um, at dawn or dusk. It's always trapped in like this liminal state where you're not quite one thing and you're not quite something else. You're waiting for like that time to pass yeah and i think one of my favorite things about the movie is there are a lot of scenes of waiting where there's just this anticipation that something is going to happen but you know it's going to wind up being violent at some point but you don't know exactly what's going to happen and caleb doesn't know exactly what's going to happen and i think those are very well done Overall, I think the movie is definitely like very well done, and it fits in with a number of ideas that were hot in that period. One specifically that I was interested in was like the idea of the vampire as a romantic figure, because it's something that extends back to like its birth and the various novels and stories that created like the idea of the modern vampire. Totally. So like in Stoker, uh, in Stoker's Dracula, um, Dracula is this like weird erotic and anti-erotic figure, depending on like what section of the book you're in, but Carmilla and other like early books definitely touch on that. And I think it's something we could definitely talk about a bit. Yeah. And I think it's something that's going to come up again and again throughout this podcast because Gothic literature is of course the foundation for a lot of what we think of as goth culture and turns up in everything from song lyrics and fashion inspiration to things like movies and the tropes in a lot of those novels are particularly concerned with this idea of the taboo as erotic and Dracula certainly as a character really represents that because it's this idea of this sort of invading alien presence that is coming into this sort of very tightly laced British society and stirring up all of these feelings in both male and female characters. And Dracula has all of this really incredible academic writing that's been done on the queer themes in the novel, which look at the fact that a lot of the real anxiety in the book is about Dracula biting men and not about him, you know, transforming Lucy. And that's something that definitely comes up over time. Um, I'm going to be jumping a little bit forward with this, but Um, I did an article for Diablo Lake, which uh, is a publication we both write for, about Disco Dracula. Which we need to do, we need to find a way to do a Disco Dracula episode, even if it's just on one (laughs) of those movies. And in doing it, I came across um, National Lampoon's put out something called Disco Beavers from Outer Space, 
which was like a series of sketches. And in it, they have um, Dracula coming to New York, which is a theme for some reason in 1979 in a number of different um, feature length and short films. But the joke, like the punchline in that movie is Dracula comes to New York and he's biting men's wrists. So like the queer reading of Dracula is definitely there. And I I wouldn't suggest watching Disco Beavers from Out of Space because it's like the jokes tend to It sounds amazing. No, it's, I'm not saying it's not funny. I'm saying like it, the jokes tend to kind of like drift off into the distance and don't always land. Um, that one was like, eh, I get the joke. I don't really think it's too funny. But um, there are other like examples of like that idea of Dracula as like a queer figure. Sure. And I think that's something that doesn't turn up too much in near dark in the way that it does in lost boys i oh, think absolutely. lost boys is that's you know, more explicitly with um jason patrick's relationship with michael and fucking interview with the vampire which is you can't not do a queer reading of i mean it's impossible the vampire as a romantic figure was something that stretches back so far from like bella lugosi all the way um through to 1850s on yeah. But it was weird because for a period, it seemed like after Bela Lugosi became a sex symbol, in American cinema at least, um, the idea of the vampire became more of like this bestial figure like you mentioned. In like the 50s and 60s specifically where you didn't see a lot, even the 40s to an extent where you didn't see like a lot of romantic vampires portrayed on film, at least in America. Oh yeah, yeah. It's, It's tragic because if you think about the vampire films of the early thirties. And then you look at the vampire films of the early forties. So something that I definitely should explain during world war two, not a lot of countries were making horror films. Britain pretty much had a flat out embargo from 1939 to 1945. I wonder why. Yeah. You know, all of the propaganda, everything had to be cheerful and everything. I also think it's hard to top the horror of Nazi Germany. You know, what, what was coming out in the news at that point? Just a bit. Uh, But you did have films like Son of Dracula, which I want to say is 1943, which if you haven't seen Son of Dracula, we're going to have to talk about it because it has an explicitly goth character. (laughs) And so I don't want to ruin it by jumping into it too much here, but it's a romantic interpretation of a vampire, uh, Lon Chaney Jr. as Dracula, but it's meant to be campy. Like, you don't really watch it and you look at it and you think, okay, this is ridiculous. And that's not to say that there aren't younger people who watch Dracula and think Bela Lugosi looks constipated, but I think it's difficult to not be impacted by the power of his performance in that film. Whereas son of Dracula definitely has some unexpectedly interesting things going on, especially the goth lady who her plan is to marry a vampire. I mean, wild smart. Why She's not wrong. I mean, Caleb could have married a vampire. He could have. But he had to ruin everything with that goddamn blood transfusion. But you didn't really see many of those figures, at least in American cinema. I know, no. like, Jess Franco and people like that were definitely doing it in Europe. In the 70s, definitely there was a European revival. But you also started seeing it in America in the 70s, too, to an extent, because that's uh, there was a revival and interest in Dracula. Like, Drac- uh, vampire studies as a field, Dracula studies sure. emerged in the 70s. And you started and seeing I think like a lot of romantic hammer films. Hammer films. I think yeah. inspired us to get back I into mean, it. Even if Christopher Lee wasn't an explicitly like romantic figure in the films, I'm pretty sure he attracted a bunch of people 
for a variety of reasons. Well, I think what's interesting about Christopher Lee's portrayal of Dracula is that it's an explicitly sexual portrayal, but it's not romantic in the sense <laughs> that you don't he's just get... gonna take what he wants. Yes, he's a pretty rapey Dracula, and I don't say that as a criticism. I think it works very well for those films, and I love all nine of them. But I think something like the 70s films was more interested in looking at the human qualities of vampires, even in Lost Boys, where you have these sort of vampire figures who are romantic in the sense that they're romantic outlaws. And I definitely think that connects back to British culture in the 1880s and 1890s when you have these things called penny gaffs and penny bloods. And those were comics and really, really cheap theatrical productions that were kind of meant to thrill and just shock and be sort of cheap over the top entertainment. It's, it's like a 1890s version of kind of the slasher movie. One really popular vampire one was called Varney the Vampire, and you can find the complete collection. It The book is giant. You could murder someone with it. But <laughs> he is very much in that sort of outlaw type where he, you know, tries to kidnap people's virginal daughters, and he's as much invested in crime as he is in blood drinking, and he's, I think, a compelling figure because he represents the sort of allure of the criminal and the forbidden. And that, in turn, becomes romantic. And then in the 70s and early 80s specifically, you start seeing a number of American films which explicitly connect the idea of like doomed romance and rom uh, the romantic vampire like to like the vampire fiction and cinema that's coming out. So in like 1979, you have the Werner Herzog adaptation of Nosferatu. And it has that uh. famous line... Um, what is it? The most, the absence of love is the most abject pain. Yeah. And it just, it really, I think is something that we're going to have to talk about on here. It's such an incredible film. It's one of my favorites. And I am someone who constantly has meltdowns about remakes, but occasionally they can be okay. I like, I am not against the idea of remakes in total. I'm just, you know, individually, like the idea of what is and isn't being remade is usually where I draw the line. Sure, but I think with the case of Dracula and that story, I tend to not see them as remakes, but as different interpretations of the novel, because for anyone who somehow is listening to this podcast and doesn't know this, the original Nosferatu was a retelling of right. the novel because he couldn't get the rights, and so Herzog is doing yet another reinterpretation of that story, which is so different from the first, the German silent film, even though there are things stylistically that it has in common. Right. He takes a bit from like Dracula proper from Nosferatu. He takes a number of different things from both of the stories. But it's also very explicitly a post-Holocaust film. Right. Um, there are a number of ratings which connect the idea of like the descent of the Nazis upon Germany to the idea of like the scene with the rats coming off the boat. Yeah, and a number of other different things, but that theme, uh, that film specifically, definitely touches on the issue of like Dracula as like this very lonely, um, pathetic figure almost, which yeah connects to a lot of the ideas in a film like Near Dark. Loneliness is their primary motivation for existence, even beyond 
survival by drinking blood, they exist to find someone else like them and meet, I don't want to say like meet up with or like pair up with, but like connect to another like soulmate to sort of ease the loneliness there there's actually this really great line in the beginning of the film that comes from may where she says something like when 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 they're kind of doing this sort of weird getting to know you flirting conversation she has this really eerie line where she says something to him like you see that star up there? I'll still be alive when the light from that star has faded. The way she delivers the line doesn't make it sound all doom and gloom, but it's such a chilling, sad line. No, absolutely. It definitely connects to um, that Nosferatu line about like loneliness and pain. Yeah, and, and I do think definitely the hunger kind of ties into this I was just well. about to mention that. Um, because if you're thinking of like a weird goth vampire movie... That is the one you're going to think of. Which we will definitely be covering. And we will cry because of David Bowie. We will just sob the whole episode. It'll be fine. We'll make it through it. My eyeliner will run. It will be okay, though. But since we're on the subject of music, it's probably good if we transition into the music portion of this episode. Yes. So I made a list of 10 albums that came out in 1987 because... 1987 was the year of goth, so there weren't just 10 albums. There were yeah, like this 30, is... and I had to whittle it down into what I thought were 10 that were very representative of um, goth music in that year. Oh, yeah. So if if you th- if this is your first time listening, we are also talking about goth music when it applies to a film that came out in a year. And this was a a challenge i would say the last episode was a challenge because not a lot of great things came out in 2003 but this This is is a challenge for the opposite reason which is especially dream soundtrack yeah which is amazing i don't know if i'd say it's explicitly got there's songs on there which definitely have like ethereal vocals and things like that but it splits the difference between like a western and an 80s movie almost yeah and i think i got a top gun vibe at moments which was weird I could see that. It had like those really muscular Top Gun guitars. Yeah, I was going to say, speaking of uh, queer readings, but I think also, Goose. before we get too far into this list, I can never decide if I think the cramps are goth or just goth. I think they're just goth adjacent. Like, No, I think they're goth. You think so? I would argue they're goth, absolutely. They're okay. a particular style of goth because they're psychobilly, which is a part of the goth culture. All they're right. not psychobilly. They inspired Psychobilly. No, and I think they, I mean, I personally find Psychobilly pretty annoying. And I think. I can take it or leave it. I like some of it. I dislike a lot of it. I think the cramps themselves, especially like Lux and Ivy, also disliked a lot of it because there are interviews where they're like, we are not that. They're just ripping us off. The first album, because we're talking about goth vampires, goth cowboys, whatever you want to call it, is Fields of the Nephilim Dawn Razor, uh, which is their first album. And I have to say, I mean, I already brought up my embarrassing list of hot dudes related to this episode, which is not only Bill Paxton as Severin and Lux from The Cramps, but Carl McCoy from Fields of the Nephilim definitely falls into this category. Goth cowboy for sure. Um, The second album is probably like the goth album um, for most people, which is Sisters of Mercy, Floodland. Another one on the hot dudes list. Um, The Cure, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, which was a weird transition album for them. Um, they were just on the cusp of like superstardom. Uh, there's Nitzreb, that total age, Skinny Puppy, who we had mentioned previously with Cleanse, Fold, and Manipulate, The Young Gods, their self-titled album. That was a Wax Tracks release, right? 
It sure was. Whatever uh, happened to the Young Gods? They released a few albums, I think, and then went on their way. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, we'll have to have a Where Are They Now episode. <laughs> like on um, Unsolved Mysteries. Exactly. Do, do, do. We have to play the music, though. Um, Susie and the Banshees, Through the Looking Glass, Alien Sex Fiend, Here Come Germs, but come spelled C-U-M. Because, because it has to be. Alien Sex Fiend. Um, Dead Can Dance, Within the Realm of a Dying Sun. Another ultimate goth album. Oh my God, yes. And then the last one, Depeche Mode, Music for the Masses. Yeah. So which of these did you think was representative of 1987? So, okay, I we talked about this a lot before we started recording, and I am really bad at picking favorites. And I struggled so much with this. I felt like I should say Sisters of Mercy's Floodland because they're one of my favorite bands. I feel like that's more applicable to other movies, though, especially when we get into like Lost Boys or something. It feels more in tone with that than this. Yes, which is why we're going to have to talk about Lost Boys, if only, so we can go over this album list again. (laughs) Uh, Oh, I can do 10 new albums, believe me. Oh, I know. There are definitely things that you didn't mention that... Like the Swans, Children of God, I don't know if people would consider that goth. I don't really consider Swans goth. But I think that might be their one goth album. I mean, so they had the Noise era, which was like uh, a cop Am- and green and all of that yes, stuff, which filth. was great. And then they did like, they moved into like the weird world music period, which is like around the same time. Which And they did the Joy Division cover of Love Will Tear Us Apart. Sure. And that's a little bit after this. But that's like, that's like sort of like I can Great see Annihilator like, and yeah, things like that. Where people might think that's goth because Joy Division always gets thrown in with goth, even though sure. they both are and are not, depending on who you talk to. Plus, I would say the addition of Jarbo, who comes in this year for Children of God, um, and her solo stuff is very goth. Yes. So the addition of Jarbo's vocals and her musical influence and definitely the, the stylistic change. I, I think you can make some comparisons between those sort of later Swans albums and something like Dead Can Dance. But for me, Children of God, I think it's a goth album. Not, so is that the one you're picking? No. <laughs> I just, of course not. I just needed to include it. So what did you pick? After much deliberation, I had to pick The Cure's Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me because... It's an interesting choice. It was one of the first goth albums I listened to when I was probably like 9 or 10. How'd you get a goth album at 9 or 10? Well, because my parents are really young. I was raised by my grandparents. My grandparents had a million children, which means I had a lot of uncles and a lot of access to good records that I wouldn't otherwise have had. Bless your heart. I wish I had that scenario in my life when i was that age yeah i mean my my uncle at the time was i want to say in his mid-20s so most of his record collection was still at my grandparents house because you know records are heavy and if you live in a small apartment like you don't want to lug them around so i just listened to things and out of all his records kiss me kiss me kiss me was the one i listened to the most and i mean it is so insane. Well, it begins with that song, The Kiss, which is like a seven-minute dirge. And it's... It's beautiful. The guitar.
But it just, it's all over the place in a way that I love. And I think it represents a lot of different eras of their career all in one record. While even the songs that are poppier, like Why Can't I Be You?, they all have this kind of theme of tormented love in a way that I think fits for this movie that we're talking about. I mean, yeah, if you look at the titles on there, it's stuff like torture and um, the kiss and like these like kind of like doomed romantic themes on there. But then also just like heaven, which in a way you can say is kind of like sad, depending on how you look at yeah, the song. To me, just like heaven was always deceptively romantic but really sad i mean everyone thinks it's like a happy song and i know it gets played at weddings and and proms but to me the tone of just like heaven is how long is this gonna last right and i mean so for me that record is weird because like you said why can't why can't i be you is on there and i know it's this is the same band that did the love cats but it's like their most explicitly poppy material in their entire career, even with what comes after. Yeah. Um, Because the next album, Disintegration is like the one that launched them into the stratosphere. And it's the best. I, Oh, I agree. Can't handle anyone who But the music on there, it's like, it's more tonally consistent throughout the record where like everything is kind of like sad, romantic, you know, sad boy, Robert Smith, what we think of him as. You can't listen to Disintegration unless it's raining out and you're laying on your kitchen floor contemplating your existence. Yes. But this record is like, it's different. You get like, like you said, different eras and different sounds. So you get something like, Why Can't I Be You? Which is still like a very like depressed, sad song. But you get like the horns and Robert Smith doing like his poppy howl and all of like the weird stuff you wouldn't expect on a Cure record. It's very manic which that's a good description i think a lot of their like probably first like two or three records have that same kind of manic energy where it's like is this person about to lose their mind And, and that's how kiss me kiss me kiss me feels to me and i just i love it so much well so my selection um because this is a movie about goth vampires goth cowboys what have you um, I went with the obvious choice and picked Fields of the Nephilim, Dawn Razor. Yes, thank you. Um, because you get like the obvious reference to Westerns on there, the opening song or reinterpretation of the harmonica song from Once Upon a Time in the West. <laughs> which is bold. Which is a weird choice. I would not expect someone to cover, like a goth band to cover Ennio Morricone. But I think there are so many great Ennio Morricone scores that have a sort of similar sound to some goth music. And it tops Metallica's interpretation of the ecstasy of gold. So, you know, I can't believe you even had to mention that. (laughs) But one of the things that's interesting about this um, record is you have like the songs, which explicitly feel like, you know, like they're trying to be goth cowboy songs. And then the rest of the stuff is just very much goth. You know, it feels like, I forget what song it is, but it's the second song on the American release. Uh, The end of the song um, has a similar chord progression to the March Violets, uh, March Into the Sun. And some of the other songs on here sound like, you know, Sisters of Mercy or something like that. So while you have a song, my favorite song, like Preacher Man. Out 
you also have um, other things which feel like more traditionally goth and don't totally fit within the theme of what they were doing. And I think they got a little better with that as they went along with the, as a band. Oh, for sure. And I think one of the things to me that's interesting about this year in particular is you have some really foundational records. Like I think Floodland from Sisters of Mercy. I think something like uh, Dead Can Dances Within the Realm of the Dying Sun. I'd say Nitzreb, that Total Age. A lot of stuff after totally that had Nitzreb. that uh, EBM sound to it. I mean, even the Love and Rockets record from that year. Oh, yeah. Our, Earth, Sun, Moon is wonderful. Yeah, are super like foundational for goth music and for those bands. But as much as I love Fields of the Nephilim, I feel like they're a band that didn't create the sound. They just helped improve it, maybe? No, totally. And that's why, so like I mentioned the Sisters of Mercy connection, because a lot of the, some of the songs on here sound like first and last and always. Which is my favorite record. It's wonderful. But like out of that record, a bunch of other bands either formed or decided they wanted to sound like that. So you have Fields of Definitely. the Nephilim, which some of their stuff sounds like that. The Mission who grew out of Sisters of Mercy. Because because they were rejected from Sisters of Mercy. Right, but their stuff definitely... <laughs> Which is a story for another episode. Their stuff definitely was influenced by that, so a lot of what's on this record feels like it was influenced by what was happening in goth culture at the time, rather than maybe standing independent of that and influencing it on its own. Totally agreed. Well, I think that's enough for today because we're hitting the hour and 30 mark or at least coming up on it. And it's 115 degrees in Philadelphia and I'm sweating my ass off. So this is another episode in the can, I guess. Yep. We're going to have to get into our RV and be sure to put up those blackout shades. So before we do that, we (laughs) We have to see if this actually is or is not a goth movie. And to do that, we have to go to the rules. We talked about the rules in the beginning. But we have to judge the movie based on the rules. Well, I think... That's what this podcast exists to do. And if we don't judge it It, as being based on the rules... It's totally a goth movie. But let's run through them. Okay. Rule number one, embrace the darkness. Do all the characters do that? Okay. So what we're going to do... This is why I'm doing this. I understand. What we're going to do right now is we're going to go with my interpretation of the movie where Jesse and Severin (laughs) are the protagonists... See, and I'm doing I'm doing it from the perspective that Caleb and May are the protagonists, and if you look at for, look at it from that perspective, this is not a goth movie. Okay, well you can fuck off because I'm looking at it from my perspective, where it is a goth <laughs> movie, and it's a romantic <laughs> tragedy about the unfortunate deaths of Severin and Jesse at the hands of these heteronormative panty wastes. That that's kind of why I wanted to do this. Depending on how you look at Near Dark, it's either like a really really cool movie, or it's just like it's an okay movie. And if you look at it from like the perspective of what we're given on screen with Caleb and May as the, it's supposed to be a doomed romance or like that's what they're setting up, but it doesn't kind of end up there because they end up in the happy place, which doesn't feel true to where the story is going for most of the film. No, and it doesn't feel true to what the film is kind of ultimately saying about American society. No, it feels kind of tacked on, but... If we're looking at it from the perspective that the vampire clan are the heroes, then let's go through the rules. Then they indeed, rule number one, embrace the darkness. Oh, absolutely. Rule number two, they also kill their fear as well as many Texans. Uh, And rule number three, live for death. I mean... The end of the film when they drive into the sun. Yep. You know? Which, that's a final note. The thing that probably pisses me off the most about this ending is that aside from orchestrating Severin's death, Caleb doesn't actually 
have the balls to even kill any of the vampires. He, he doesn't just, even really kill He doesn't Severin. do anything. He he puts the there's a semi that he jackknifes, which I guess kind of kills Severin, but like Severin burns up. He's a vampire. I don't think he's actually dead. Do you? Hell no. So on that note, this was another episode of Evil Eye. Please join us again next time when we come up with some other weird movie that we think of. And that until then, hopefully we'll have a, <laughs> a creep van. Goodbye. There was blood on the saddle and blood all And a great big puddle of blood on the ground. A cowboy lay in it, all covered with gold. in his head.